I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Ross Oak. And Ross Oak is currently the General Manager at the Goolwa to Wellington Local Action Planning Association. That's Welcome, Ross. Well done, Adrian. Hi, guys. Thank you. It's a hell of a website name as well. Yeah, right on. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of, lot of big words there. But, I mean, you've done so much more than that, mate, haven't you? I've, um, I first uh, learnt about your work back when I first started Animals Anonymous 15 years ago, and I had this great idea to make handouts for people to help them um, learn about how to attract wildlife to their properties. Sure. And, I, and I thought, I'll jump online and see if anyone else has done something, and you had done it all. Um, <laughs> not, I didn't need to do a thing. Yeah, not all by myself, obviously. Um, but, yeah, the Backyards for Wildlife uh, program is, uh, well, initiative, I guess you'd call it. There was, a, as you would know, there's what, probably 10 or 12 factories, ultimately, but that was a program that I was involved with when I was working in the Greater Adelaide area. And it's really about looking to give people information and ideas about how they might connect with nature in a really practical way, where they live, either in their their own front or backyards or in their local neighbourhoods. It's a great name, Backyard for yeah. Wildlife. Yeah, I, uh, I sort of co-opted um, the Land for Wildlife initiative, which I believe started in Victoria, and uh, we were looking to see how we might be able to get something, a name that would um, inspire people or be, be a useful kind of marketing idea. So Backyards for Wildlife was it. And that was initiated probably back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And um, it's still, those fact sheets, I believe, are still on the web. They're still being used and the formatting might have changed a little bit, but the information is still there. Well, when I discovered them, I thought, why reinvent the wheel? And I, and I came in to see you guys and you printed <laughs> them up, laminated them, and I still use them to this day and they're fantastic. Yeah, yeah, they're still useful. They're still really good. They're still quite popular even where I work now. We're based in the Strathalbyn Natural Resource Centre and Strathalbyn's a, a country town about an hour from Adelaide, for those that don't know it. We still have them in our Natural Resource Centre. They're still really popular. And we've also got a few initiatives going. There's one of them with Mount Barker Council that we're um, currently doing. Mount Barker Wildlife Gardening, but out of out of what we did, there's been a whole lot of different initiatives within Adelaide, and but also just more generally, the burgeoning interest in this sort of thing means that there's been a whole lot of initi- similar initiatives all over the place, all throughout Australia and across the world. So people are just interested to know more about what they can do, what what's living in their local environments, and how their actions might be positive in respect to conserving wildlife flora and fauna rather than the opposite which would be you know having a negative impact i mean obviously something like um, urban development or any kind of uh, development where you're altering what was a natural environment is going to have an impact so that being the case there's a lot of interest from people about well how can we minimize that or even potentially enhance by what we're doing enhance um, habitat for example for certain species some interesting examples i guess where you know threatened species rely on built environments um there was a i believe a swallow in in the uk that's most its most common habitat is actually old buildings so i mean you know those those kind of interesting stories where and, and hedgerows for example the dry stone walls in the uk provide extraordinary habitat for wide diversity of animals but most of my focus has been on on plants we've uh, through the work I've done, I've worked on a lot of broad-scale revegetation, but also local projects. And the main focus has been on the plants and promoting awareness about um, the plants that occur locally in a particular area and how people might find out more about those. So part of what we also did was a, a local plant database where people could look in there and get information about various species, including potentially the cultivation notes on how they might grow and how you might use them in your garden, what you can do with them in, from a landscaping amenity horticulture perspective. And so that's been, there's been a lot of interest in that and there still is. So that we're still growing these sort of plants and many other groups are growing local native plants and making them available to people. So 
Yeah, it's all good stuff. I think that's one of the most important things you can do, isn't it? Local native plants in the area. Yeah, and I think we touched on our last podcast with um, with John Gisham, like how I love this because this is all about our local diversity, everything we've got locally. A lot of people concentrate on, you know, amazing animals that need our help, like orangutans, pandas, stuff like that. Sure. Amazing, amazing animals. But, yeah, we really need to concentrate on our local stuff, and that's exactly what like your work does I, I love that absolutely it's great that you're making it accessible for people too because sometimes you have to be a bit of a detective to find out what grew in your area you know you've got a if you're lucky the the closest conservation park has a species list um you know and you can kind of go and then quite often they're comprehensive they're not necessarily yeah. plants you can go and buy from the nursery because most of the things that grow out there you can't go and buy and so yeah. if you well there's a lot now of species you can buy but Nothing can compare to the whole suite that's going to be on a species list from a management plan for a, a park. So it's great that you've made yeah. that more accessible for people too. Yeah, definitely. It's um, that challenge, that old chestnut of availability of local plants, is something that you know it's it's improved over the years, but it's still because it's coming largely in terms of the nurseries that provide local native plants. The most of them have, are involved with more broad acre revegetation work. Uh, environmental restoration work but through initiatives like the ones that we've got going and other groups local councils make them available um, there's a couple in Adelaide um, Grey Box Day that I was involved with that was the, brilliant that was yeah. I think it's still going but uh, the understory project in northern Adelaide it's Kersbrook Nursery and in fact there's a whole list of nurseries that um, I believe still on the web that uh, we put together where you can access local plants and a lot of them you know, they might have a plant sale a couple of times a year or they might be open once a week. So it's not like you can just sort of decide I'm going to put some colourful plants in my garden and go and, and buy them. That We're not quite at that stage, but certainly much more readily available and the information's much more readily available than what it was 10, 20 years ago. And like I said, just those examples of how you might use the plants. So we've been involved with um, a range of projects that are more amenity uh, oriented, you know, there might be streetscapes or courtyard gardens, those sort of examples. So there's a, a range of those. In fact, just thinking as we're talking, it, it could be a good idea to um, perhaps make some of those a list of those available on the web. Um, I don't believe that's currently available. There's street, loads, street trees. Well, not so much. Uh, well, just thinking in terms of um, various examples of how local plants have been used in different urban environments. Uh, there's a lot of examples I'm aware of, but. A lot of them publicly available. But I think one of the things that we were looking to try to do was create a bit of a paradigm shift where people would be exposed to local native plants more just in their everyday lives, so on verges or in local parks and things like that. And that the use of local native plants has definitely increased significantly over the last you know, couple of decades. Uh, but still people, you know, most most people maybe don't realise, but... They're certainly being exposed to it a lot more than what they were, and I think it's really useful to for people who are interested in doing something that's more in tune with the local ecology, perhaps, that they can investigate a bit further and, and have ready access to that information. So get people to see some lamandras and some dianellas instead of some acopanthas, perhaps? Exactly, yeah. I mean, very similar structural form, but with a local dianella, for example, um, you're much more likely to attract the blue-banded bees because they... they seem to love those flowers I believe they're attracted to blue flowers but in particular the dianella if you plant it highly likely that you'll get blue banded bees hovering around one of the best things I like about local native plants sorry Steve I always get to talk about plants it's great the <laughs> <laughs> Aussie wildlife show um, so, but without plants there's no wildlife bees, bees are wildlife right. bees yeah. are wildlife there you go um, I did five private encounters around here yesterday around the property I did five little guided walks through uni students at Flinders Uni they've got an environmental group there and you know you, you it's one of the hardest things sometimes is like you can you can hold on if you're sitting there holding a wombat everyone wants to know about how it survives in the wild and yeah you can talk about wombats for days and people love and they get to pat it but but then you talk about habitat and it gets a bit like oh you know you say plants it's like oh you know it's not easy (laughs) but we actually get to walk down into the bush now and i can what i said to these guys was every one of these plants is a remnant plant they're a local native plant they've grown here together for millennia they've got everything they need they weren't grown in a nursery 
You don't, there's no irrigation. Yeah. Um, in summer, this place is still green. Um, the hottest days, heat waves, it's all green. And they've got their, you know, every part of their system is here for them to survive. And they, they go off and they, they self-propagate. And that's, that's just remarkable that that's mm. happening there. And that's the joy that you can hope to achieve with a local native plant. Yeah, no, I find it really interesting and it's good to have discussions and um, perhaps debates about this sort of thing in terms of, you know, to what extent you you might um, favour using local native plants over a, an introduced species, for example. And um, just having a discussion online with a friend the other day who posted um, an article about um, reconstructing meadows that included, you know, grasses and flowering plants, uh, and just the extent to which, you know, having more nectar available or more pollen available and therefore the type of plant you choose might not be relevant or even a political issue. Just sort of nuancing that in terms of, well, just because you've got more pollen available is not necessarily better. It might be better for certain species. Certain types of insects or birds might be favoured by that but what can happen then is that you get more of those uh, at the expense of other species so the more you look into that more the more you know it's good to investigate potentially what might happen if i just choose local native plants which might have smaller flowers or you know might attract um, buzz pollinators and things like that rather than other types of insects but it might have more diversity correct yeah, and just and just even like I was getting touching on before, just exposing people to local native plants and used in a different setting rather than a you know bushland setting that people might visit once a year. Plants may or may not be flowering, but the number of times people and even myself, I still I'm still sort of discovering plants. I think, oh, that's a local native plant, and just has this amazing structured flower <laughs> that. Um, you know, but then the symbiotic relationships with some insects. There's, we've got local native plants that are particularly favoured by certain insects, and the understanding that the amount of data that that we have about uh, about this sort of thing is quite limited. You know, we don't really understand very much about the relationships between insects, in particular, um, and our plants and, and other animals that might, for example, feed on those insects. It's a, it, yeah, I can imagine there wouldn't be much information. Um, yeah, you'd, you'd have to spend a very long time sitting around a flower to see see what comes to pollinate it, and some random insect will appear, and you'll be like, "Okay, what the hell is this?" Um, <laughs> yeah, just so many insects. And uh, hats off to the people that specialise in understanding, you know, those particular bits of our our environment. Um, I'm much more of a generalist, sort of know a fair bit about not very much, but. A lot of people who know a lot about specific things, it's good to be able to tap into their knowledge and, uh, and that, that's interesting as well. But just in terms of how people might, you know, that nexus with between environment and, and people and buildings, just even things like trees, you know, houses and trees just don't really mix. You can make it work by potentially uh, aggregating houses and, and having trees in larger bits of reserve and that's been a... a a trend lately in urban development where you you know allocate a decent amount of open space uh, but people live in houses on smaller blocks so those ideas have sort of found their way into government planning and policy over the years but even so people are still like to have greenery around their garden and their on their balconies things like that so it's good to have the option to look at what's what's local and and how that might work or, or what those options are there's still a, a the point, like, even if you live in a block of flats, if everyone in, yeah. had, in that block of flats had a couple of plants out on their balcony, that's a big green area as a whole, all right? Mm-hmm. The, the, Definitely. You know, the bees have to fly from, bit, you know, from plant to plant around the corner, but as a footprint, yeah. that's, that's a big green area. Absolutely. The, um, the idea of green roofs or green buildings uh, in terms of actual foliage and plants and things like that, um, I was looking at a really interesting little article on social media the other day i can't recall i should have written it down but i can't recall the exact place but it's it's uh, it's in italy uh it's a tower so it would have been a wealthy family back in the day and at the top of this tower there are you know quite large trees planted and that was the kitchen garden but we're going back you know hundreds of years so it's not a new idea in that sense mm. it would have been interesting going up probably 
six or so flights to you know, going get, up the, to get your herbs and get the herbs <laughs> and come back down again. But um, but certainly in Australia, probably you know we've had the luxury of lots of open space. We're a low density country, um, but more so people living in cities are living in high density situations. So question then is how do we best manage open space for combination of uses and recreation and where does it, where does flora and fauna sit into that what sort of animals might we be able to sort of attract into those areas snakes hopefully yeah well, well there's I mean, a lot yeah. of them around because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of species that rely on the you know the remnant bushland areas but then there's some species and i think you touched on it before mm. that seem to be like dominator species that in the altered environment things like come to mind noisy miners and possums yeah, possum. I mean, that's an interesting one in itself. Yeah, because, because they're endangered in most places mm, apart from yeah. where, where there's a lot of houses. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, people, would, <laughs> uh, so people think there's too many brush-tailed possums in Australia. There's there's so many in, in the suburbs, but you get out and they're, like, extinct over, over most of their range. I mean, they're, they're just reintroduced into the Flinders because um, they were gone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. most people would say, reintroducing possums, that's, that's insane. But, yeah. yeah, everybody says, you can have mine. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Yeah, bats is another one that's really interesting. It's piqued a lot of people's interest lately. We've been um, running some projects where people can hire what's called an anabat, which is just it's like a recorder. Set them up in your yard and uh, record the bat calls, so high-frequency high calls that we don't normally hear. And then it runs uh, analytics to tell you what species you've got. Um, but that, as a citizen science project, we found that really, really engaging and useful to the point where uh, Jackie, our community engagement project officer, went to New Zealand to talk with others from South Australia on a conference about bat monitoring. So it's really exciting and interesting in and of itself, but it's also a doorway, I think, into you know much broader um, exploration of environment and people and um, opens your eyes to looking at the world a bit differently. Well, bats um, is one of those things that, I mean, there's... Well, there's something like 10, 12 species of bat in the Mount Lofty Ranges. It's quite like, a lot, yeah. A, yeah Micro bats. Me. Micro bats, little, little, little insect-eating bats. And there's, I mean, there's one you can hear, the, the white-striped mastiff or something. I'm not sure. Yeah. White-striped. Yeah, the white-striped mastiff. Yeah, right. yeah, there's a whole plethora. But there's one that its frequency is within the yeah. frequency that humans can hear. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we can hear between 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz, but most of the micro bats are way above that but this particular one falls within our mm. hearing spectrum so we can hear that one but i mean they're things that you you wouldn't know about they're yeah. doing their thing yeah yeah and that's you know, that, that whole idea of um putting up nest boxes uh, there's a lot of interest in that for from um a threatened species point of view in terms of out in uh, rural and uh, natural environments looking to augment habitat with uh, nest boxes a lot of interest and study going on with that but people can do a similar thing you know in quite small areas even like we we're saying before in built up areas but it's worth getting the information about because other people have experimented and and find out what works so for you know nest boxes for bats the way you might design them for example at our place it's the back of the house that i built as a reverse veneer so it's got western red cedar and then a one-inch gap or 25mm gap, and then hebel, hebel blocks on the inside, and they love the rough texture of the hebel blocks, and they've been able to, because I'm a dodgy builder, they've been able to get in through underneath the barge board, and they, they can move up and down the length, the, the height of the wall, and I've noticed that they do that to sort of regulate the temperature a bit, so on a cold day they might move up closer to the, the tin roof. So, uh, you know, that, and I've noticed that in bat box design that, you know, similar elements are involved, so the, the gap and the rough texture and having a, um, a taller design bat box is useful. How you might orientate them, north-facing, fo- north west, east, whatever, south, the information about that's becoming more and more available, not just for bats, of course, but for all sorts of birds and things like that. But then again, people need to be aware of... Um, the fact that you might get something in there that you don't really want, so it could be taken over by exotic bird species or feral bees or something like that. So you kind of need to go into it with a bit of information, and that's what we're all about, and what you're about as well. 
Yeah, we had um, James Smith on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know James? Yeah, for nature. Yeah, yeah he yeah, was yeah. talking about the bat boxes were a funny one. He said that they, I think they did a west-facing box and then maybe, I can't remember the other perspective, but because at certain times of the year they preferred one and then they moved to the other. So that's kind then, of in line with your story. Yeah, good. And that information, the knowledge base is building up. You know, it's good that people are happy to share that as well. Um, you know, so much information around now compared to what there was, but... So, yeah, really, I guess, you know, it's it's been good to be part of doing more traditional habitat reconstruction type work um, on different scales. But the nexus with um, with people and urban environments in particular is something that I've spent a fair bit of time thinking about and getting involved in. And one of the main reasons, I guess, was just to get people's enthusiasm and interest and, and then you can explore and find your own sort of niche I guess yeah it's funny isn't it whatever it is that gets people involved I mean there's a there's a range whether they're into birds or frogs yeah into plants or whether they're into insects or bees a lot of people want to you know suddenly they people just get on a bee thing and they want to attract bees bee hotels bee hotels yeah. and there's certain iconic species that you know get them on board what are they called bees are the dolphins of the insect world or something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something like don't quote me um, <laughs> not really. a lot of interest yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely yeah, yeah. yeah well, I think my wife does all of that at some point. She's got a B B and B. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's she's got her attracting uh, plants that attract butterflies and the bees and everything. So yeah. we're sort of trying to work towards that. We've got nest boxes up, but I've really got to investigate that because they've never been even looked in. I don't think. Well, you've got a possum that lives above your door. Like, yeah, just that out lives, in the open. Yeah, <laughs> out in the open above our door in okay, our porchway. Yeah. It comes, some but only on a really hot day it will sit there. Yeah, but it's like so. literally like four or five meters away from oh, the yeah. nesting box it, you've put up there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so close to the nesting box and nothing's ever. I've looked in them in in the last month. I've actually had a look, and it's got the same <laughs> handful of dried leaves that I put in there, and it's got nothing else. They're immaculate. Which is a good thing. Like they're really clean still. Yeah. <laughs> Could be worth looking at. I mean, I, I made a nest box out of a log, a fallen, fallen hollow branch, and capped the ends, and uh, that gets used and has been for a long time. It was, it was hanging a bit precariously a while back, so I've had to sort of fix it up again and make it a bit better. But we've got, a, and that's a, there's a brush tail in that. But we have other, a, uh, a mother and a baby brush tails in the back shed. Um, and they're in a couple of old bits of logs that I had floating around that I was going to make a nest box out of mm. them lying on the ground. But They found it uh, before you started they, to make Yeah, it. <laughs> they're quite happy. They can get in there away from the dog and, um, you know, come out at night time. And I'll keep the... This is the thing, like, just the tips of those principles that we had about... One of them is around just keeping your pets under control. So cats get a really bad rap and um, people need to be careful and look after and their, their cats. But dogs also, you know, reptiles are, can be... Uh, severely impacted by dogs and so yeah there's certain you know at night time when the possums come out we you know, tend to bring the dog in or make sure he's in and not sort of getting carried away chasing possums but mm. it's one of those things isn't it like everybody's entitled to have a dog in their garden sure. but then they want to attract wildlife and a yeah. blue tongue comes in and the first thing it does is get it gets eaten by a dog correct yeah exactly well, it's, i mean some will bark some will just bark but others will certainly go the full terrier on um but yeah, it's 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 about having. If you've got a bit of space, then you can do more. If you've got a little bit of land, you can have a bigger tree, and you, know, you might have a separate area for the dog and other areas where it doesn't go. So yeah, at our place, it's you know, the front yard is the bigger part, and um, dog's not out there. But there is a local cat that gets around that oh. drives a dog crazy when its bell rings. But if people can look after their pets. Uh, it's the main thing, you know, keeping your cats in at night time and and being responsible for them and that even just doing that would go a long way to helping conserve wildlife there's so many people that just don't believe that their cats are creating this problem that their cats you know go out they don't go out and well we feed it well they don't go out and eat they do like they might not even eat the native animals but they play with them and they kill them but they don't always eat them yeah yeah they're they're pretty nasty things really they're not controlled well, that's right, and they're just doing what they've evolved to do. Yeah, we had Dr John Reid on the show recently, and he was talking about his new book. It's called Among the Pigeons, and how cats spread toxoplasmosis. And the toxo gives animals 
additional courage. <laughs> it's really yeah, they make some risk takers. So they <laughs> so you get these dumbfounded animals out in the middle of the middle, of, um, you know, not hiding, sort of out and exposed. So it makes it easy for predators to knock them okay. off. That's yeah, pretty extraordinary. And it, and it can be passed on to humans. So you get people that become higher risk takers because they're carrying this toxoplasmosis. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. What that, a strange thing. It is a strange thing. Mm. Yeah, it is. Well, that whole human wild animal interface is something that I guess is happening more and more isn't it as we um as we're finding out with covid yeah but speaking <laughs> about covid i did want to ask you ross have you noticed a lot more people because now we can't travel well i think things are opening up a bit more now but during the like the extreme lockdowns people are spending more time in their their gardens and getting more into you know what looking at their local wildlife no, I mean, yeah i mean anecdotally where where we work in strath it's um you know, we've got within the township. We'd, we've been selling some local native plants, and certainly, as I said before, those fact sheets are really popular. So, um, yeah, look, I think people have been coming in. There is, there's still probably a similar level of interest as before, but um, definitely the whole thing of gardening in terms of being able to physically get out and do a bit of bit of physical work as well. That's really appealing. Uh, to a lot of people um, trying to think there's been some things I've noticed around COVID but certainly uh, with people working at home that that need to get out and about and connect with not just nature well people and nature I guess people are a lot of people are really keen to um, feeling a bit you know cabin fever but in South Australia we uh, for those people that are not from South Australia we've we've had it pretty good really we've um, We've had a couple of lockdowns, but um, overall been been able to move about fairly readily. Yeah, I, I feel sorry, really, really sorry for the businesses and the people that suffered during lockdown. But yeah. I, I loved it, absolutely loved it. I just need, I, ne- I think I needed a break. <laughs> yeah, um, we didn't. We got busier. All the trades and that just got busier. It was insane. Yeah. But taking that question a step further, um, do, do you think like you've been doing this? This was 20 years ago when mm. you put these backyards for wildlife together. So you've been in this 20 years plus. Yeah. It, do you see a difference from them to now with the people sort of getting involved in this? Do you think there's more people? Yeah, look, I think it's, there's still probably the vast majority of people. That one of the key things that, that probably hasn't changed is that most of us expect things to happen pretty quickly. So if we, if we decide we're going to do the garden, then we want to pretty much go and get the plants and mm. and do it. Certainly within the um, contractor side, there's been a significant in- increase in the amount of usage of local native plants and local government, uh, local government making decisions to use local native plants in, like I was talking about before, with street verges and well, even creek lines and things like that. There's been a big shift, and a part of a big part of what we did was to focus on that. We, you know, we ran professional development stuff for local councils and embedded, if you like, uh, hosted project offices in local councils. Um, back when I started, that it just wasn't a thing. There was a couple of environment officers throughout the whole of Adelaide in in local local councils. Now it's you know the local government has been really strong on on this sort of thing, particularly in terms of policies and and having some staff. And, and then in practical ways as well, like potentially running nurseries or subsidising plants for people to access and providing information. But certainly um, uh, that burgeoning interest is, is there. As I was saying before, the accessibility is still not probably as readily available as what people would like, but people are more willing to um, think about it and step back and plan, and that, that's why we try to make a few plants at least available and the more that that kind of thing happens, I guess, the more people... Because um, quite often it's... it's Someone gets a bit of an idea, or, you know, I'm going to go and investigate that, and if they hit a dead end, um, you've kind of lost that. So, But if there's something that they can tap into through a local environment centre or a local council or the local nursery might have um, a section of local native plants for sale. At Warrawong, I believe that you know John Wormsley used to have a few plants for sale and things like that. So people, there's always you know state flora is you know they keep really good records of the provenance of their plants. They have good information about the labelling and cultivation notes. So you can go to state flora in Belair and, um, and they'll have plants that are, occur locally. They might not have been 
uh, grown from seed that's necessarily uh, local to your particular area, but you'll at least have that information. They've got a wealth of information. And a lot of our local plants have been used in cultivation for a long time, even before, you know, before I started all this. Certainly not pioneer in that sense. Um, there's hardened verdures and a whole range of plants that have been used in cultivation for quite a long time. That's a great point. Like I, I, we, we say it like when you when you think about all the like recycling and um, buying buying better foods to make the planet you know healthier and, and all of those sorts of things that we we all want to do and we all but unless it's made easy yeah just doesn't work as quick and it's through the whole thing you know just buying native plants if you if you buy native plants that attract bees and it's got to be easy to actually get yeah because um, otherwise you can go to anywhere and get pansies and colorful things and roses and and stuff and fake lawn fake lawn and or even lawn <laughs> and uh, yeah, do you know? It's got to be made easy. I think that's a key thing to all of it. Yeah, and that's what you've done. Yeah, I've, definitely with these backyards for wildlife things. I mean, the information's simple to understand on there. Yeah, yeah. So then it's getting out and about and um, going to markets and farmers markets and things like that to let people know about it. And because obviously, you know, we we've, we've only scratched the surface in terms of um, reaching people on a one-to-one basis, either through the information downloads or face-to-face. Um, more broadly, as I was saying before, people were probably a bit less aware of the fact that there's all sorts of biodiversity all around them. Um, you know, a mix of native and exotic primarily, because uh, obviously we've altered landscapes pretty much everywhere. Yeah, you're dead right, Steve. If, um, if people were, are interested in, in wanting to go out and buy some plants or access plants then you do have to make it easy for them but um, I guess that's what we've been endeavouring to, to do and um, and it's not, not just about doing this sort of for any kind of political reason it's not that you know sort of saying oh you should only just do this it's, it's really giving people the option and the information to make some choices based on a you know, different perspective mm. um, and the deeper you go into it, I guess the more you the more you'll find. It's like a microcosm, macrocosm type mm. situation. It's good that, like I was saying before, local councils have really got on board with this sort of thing, both both in terms of you know some of their policies, how they manage their parks and gardens. Some areas are, you know, they're playing fields, and that's all fine. But other areas, if they can do something that benefits and enhances local ecology, then you know all, I'm all for it. Mm. It seems like there's a lot of people interested in doing something that's going to benefit the local ecology. Yeah, yeah, there is. This, uh, certainly, you know, that interest is there. It's, um, you know, I don't, don't have any numbers in terms of you know, trying to sort of quantify that, but it's one of the more popular areas in terms of what people are asking for information from, from us and I know from, from other natural resource centres or local councils and places like that where people are... And in terms of downloads, um, you know, the Backyards for Wildlife stuff was, was probably still is one of the most popular uh, sources of information. So it's it's really good. And as I was saying before, that was one of the key objectives was really about how do we engage with people, not necessarily to get everyone to change what they're doing and plan only certain things, but just for a, awakening, I guess, a bit of an understanding and appreciation for for our local environment and our local heritage um, or natural heritage yeah I mean I was very lucky to um, be invited to come out and speak at a couple of your events yep and uh, specifically to talk about that I used to live in the, the Mount Barker area yep. my house before AAHQ and it was just a, a quarter acre block and uh, had lawn on there when I moved in which was fine so I killed it um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I tried to put back um, at the biggest diversity of local native plants that I could get and you know about 90% yeah. of that's like small ankle high species and they're not always easy to find um, some you have to grow yourself but many like you said some of those nurseries you mentioned um, and I'll add to that places like digiflora and providence plants and yep. then you then you learn about backyard growers that specialize in this type of plant and whatever or whatever so you you know you you find these things and um, 
and it was great. And I had I had some shrubs along the fence and a couple of tall trees at the back, but the majority of it was just the understory species. And there is always something there's always something flowering, and just in this small kind of um, mm. area, there was about eighty species of plant, and many of which started coming up on their own, which is fantastic to see. There wasn't a single weed. There was nowhere for a weed to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and you see a lot of people that they go down the road of you know native plants and whether they're local or not they tend to grab i'll grab a, a bottle brush and a banks here and they just plant all these shrubs and then they don't have anything on the ground or they don't have um yeah any native things in the ground they just have the weedy grasses come through so we we just had all these local native ground covers and and small forbs and lilies and um just a diversity of colors they even had a small pond yep um i mean you had a handout a wonderful handout on um, attracting fish and frogs to your garden. Yep. yep. Um, and and we did that. That that worked. Yeah. Um, the fish, fish died. I'm I didn't sure attract you. any fish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I attracted frogs. I had frogs. Um, Might have to introduce those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, it was amazing. Yeah. It, it just that every time I went out there, I'd see something new. And um, yeah, f- from an area that was just a lawn, and this happened all pretty quickly. I know you made a great point earlier about people want a garden to be. Yeah. You know, when you hire a landscaper, you, you when they leave, you know, you want that garden to be perfect. It's not going to happen unless you. Put in established things, and they're never going to be local native. If they're established, they're going yeah. to be things like agapanthus yeah, and yeah. you know all that kind of stuff, <laughs> hybrids and things. Yeah, and and we had Sophie Thompson um, do some talks with us yeah, too. Yeah. I remember, and yeah. she's been on the show, and she made the great point about she was there one day just talking about bees. Ross, you remember? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and on on the podcast, she talked about you know everyone's everyone's saying how hey, there's less bees and less insects and. Once upon a time, people had big gardens, mm. and then there was an area behind the shed where it was kind of a bit weedy, and there was things just left to go, and that's where the insects would come in. There was always somewhere for them to land, and now mm. there's like these strap-like leaf sort of, you know, plants. You've got one mm. species in a verge, and you've got your lawn or your fake lawn. There's um, yeah, there's no see, diversity of plants. It's a really good point. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, a, and again, bringing up sorry, no, Ross, no. bringing up the um, like all those the state flora. In digiflora, Providence plants, places like, like, you know, again, I'm going on that simple route of people that think, yeah, but it's going to be really hard because if you read up, it automatically comes up with what's your soil, clay, this, that. These places have um, experts in them as well. Uh, mm. I normally go to Mackie at State Flora, who helps me through everything, um, and they'll they'll tell you where are you, what's your soil like, or they'll probably tell you what your soil is like most of the time, and they'll almost pick plants out that it's going to be a success in your garden like to, uh, I'm just going along that route of trying to make it easy for people as well yeah. These some of these native garden centres that come up now um, they are experts because that's why they're doing what they're doing yeah for sure no, it's, uh, I guess um, coming back to what you're saying uh, about um, you know wanting everything done straight away but that that's part of that paradigm shift I guess that I was thinking along the lines of well what is a garden and um but you raise a really good point around the, the fact that blocks have got smaller and um, I think that comes back to what I was saying with local government and what the, how they might treat a, a reserve. So how do you potentially offset that loss? Um, so your reserves need to be more than just you know lawned areas for, for playing sports uh, or having a picnic. They need to incorporate biodiversity in them. And you can actually, if it's done well, you can because you're aggregating the space, you can provide some more valuable habitat because you end up with a bigger space. But it's changing that thinking. But um, yeah, and I don't know the first thing about. It. I don't look into the horticultural side of things. I just kind of go, well, this once grew here, yeah. so it'll grow here again, and it mm. tends to. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty, you know. Um, and I've had a lot of success. Yeah, so, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, I've seen I've seen photos. I haven't seen your, your actual garden, but that looks fantastic. And then just in terms, like you're saying, but I think it comes down to that principle of um, being mindful of if you make that plant choice, then what's what effect is that likely to have in terms of the broader environment? So avoiding weeds is one of the key principles in the backyards for wildlife. Um, now, a weed might not be a weed in one place, but it certainly can be in another. So it's all horses for courses. We're, like I was saying before, we're not, you know, what we're on about is not trying to get people to all do uh, a particular style of gardening, but being open to the idea of thinking about how you might make a choice that will affect certain, have a certain outcome in terms of its effect more broadly. So planting bottle brushes, um, you know, you will attract honey eaters. Um, you might attract certain, you know, 
if you plant all shrubs and things like that, you might have lots of wattle birds, but not, not not much diversity. And if you bring the understory in, then um, start to have a look at the insects and smaller birds and things like that, then it's it's a much more diverse environment. So good on you for doing that. <laughs> yeah, it just it was. Yeah, that's really selfish. I, I didn't even do it for the environment. I did it for me. Yeah, I, yeah. I love seeing that ah, stuff. Sh- sh- I oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's all about it's all about the environment, folks. <laughs> but but I mean, you know, I had acacia pignantha, which is our um, a national floral emblem. Yep. Not a particularly stunning plant. I, I like them. Um, but one day, it's actually for a good couple of nights in summertime, we'd have these little beautiful green cicadas, and they'd be on there just calling away. And it yeah. was like, you know, this area was lawn not that long ago, you know? And then yeah. you've got all these different things coming in, all the little skinks and, you know, the whole thing, apart yeah. from the mammals. Anybody... It's, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> Even the, the small scale that my wife's done, I was going to say I've done, but the wife's done <laughs> our place. Yeah. Like, she listens you know, to the show. We see blue-banded bees and... Yeah. Uh, stuff like that and the amount of little skinks that yeah. we've got now you know i think in the last year or two that's that that's exploded their numbers have exploded they're just everywhere yeah um, it's great it works absolutely works you got that big river red gum at your place too haven't you huge river red gum strangely yeah at my place which is at which is in a um what's gray box gray woodland. box woodland yeah, yeah. Mm. but they said there used to be a lake or something around or a waterway around there somewhere that's why the river red gums are there oh, yeah. Mm. yeah there you go yeah tend to tend to see them a lot along you know along water courses but mm. not not confined purely to water courses they mm. sort of come up up the hills a bit and yeah apparently there was some sort of water course there that's why because there are quite a few big River Reds, but the one in our front garden's huge. Hope it never comes down. It's funny those. Cook- <laughs> I don't know if the listeners could hear those kookaburras in the background. Laughing I'll also, at me. I'll also say I hope they can't hear the track. There's a tractor whining down in the valley. The whole. <laughs> so hopefully that's not getting on your nerves, folks. But as that kookaburra there, just before it did, I, I thought like in your river gum you could have a kookaburra box, and he's got plenty of food with all your little skinks. There's like a big split in the middle of it. Um, that you could, I reckon you could get your hand in and go right round the inner parts of the tree, um, which which there's always some birds and that nesting in there. Yeah, okay. But yeah, kookaburra. We have a lot of kookaburras. Oh, you do? House. Yeah, a hell of a lot of kookaburras. Well, you've got so, the upstairs balcony. You got a yeah. Which we sit out there and you? they're always there's five or six out there sometimes, just laughing, laughing yeah. away Thinking merrily. Better yeah, it's here. nice yeah. nice to have big trees around. We've got a big river red gum right down the front of our place as well. And the, um, wood ducks, you know, main ducks, they breed in there every year and go making a lot of noise in winter. Yeah. And um, But there was a great poster getting around. I think the South Australian Department of Environment put it out years ago. Just I can't remember the name of it, but it was a river red gum with then all the species and animals that. Mm. I remember that, that. You remember that yeah. one? Yeah. Yeah. It was a great poster. With spiders to geckos to yeah. parrots and. Yeah, possums and birds. There's and no hollows in our one, so I don't know whether that means it's quite a young tree. It's a huge tree. It might yeah, be a hundred plus years old. Yeah, it, well, I, I would imagine it would be, but um, doesn't seem to be any hollows in it at all. Well, that's, well, that highlights the fact, I guess, that you know, depending on what's happened over the years, if a bough drops or you know mm. the tree splits, and or if there's a fire or whatever, that all changes mm. the structure of the tree and. It's interesting. It's, if you do have a big enough yard and you can have some big trees, that's, they're really good to have around. But mm. coming coming back to that accidental um, aspect, I, I built a dry stone wall at the back of our place and had dianella planted on the top of it. But it's you know it's kind of ideal for the, again for the blue banded bees and yeah. and uh, just the fact that you know a lot of our native bees, you know, they live on the ground. Uh, just people you know sort of intrigued to learn more about them i don't i don't know a lot about them and there's so many species as well that but they're good to have around and um and then uh, again accidentally and similar things like the case you picking out the you know generally produce a lot of seed once they start flowering and seeding and the ants will just carry most of them off you know they'll, they'll be up and down busily you know storing seed and, and moving that stuff around the environment so there's all these things that we don't generally see but it's Important, I think, to remember that gardens aren't a static thing. That, for example, having a case of picnanthera after after a few years, probably less than a decade, it will senesce, and, and you'll have a, a structure of branches that you need. Then you decide what you're going to do with that. You know, keep that, or plant more, or, or whatever. But they become perching spots for birds potentially. Um, so thinking about 
and if they fall over then obviously all the microorganisms and ants and insects make use of it so if you've got a little bit of space and you can have some of them around the place and um, you know have that beautiful yellow flower in, in winter and add some hardened bergia for a bit of purple flowering and those options in, in, in Australia and South Australia in particular but then you know picking up on your comment before around uh, how people might use local native plants in um, in different settings um, you know you can there's information now that's that's more readily available about which plants you can potentially prune and use them in more of a, a formal garden setting so um, Adrian I think you, you talked about using dianella instead of agapanthus for example so that that sort of planting of dianella in, in a strip or alongside a driveway or you know, those sorts of ideas um, they're all interesting ideas and I think the more we see these plants around the place um, people are probably more used to seeing things like sedges planted on roadsides and they get incorporated into formal type gardens so you'll see them in you know uh, in the middle of the city uh, in, in the Adelaide Museum there's dianella planted you know right there by the foyer um, it's quite a formal sort of design but that structure of that plant um, in terms of its habitat value it's probably still contributing something uh, it depends what's around it I guess but it's proximity to other how your garden sits in proximity to other gardens is also something to think about but yeah yeah they're quite effective there they're like in a swale yeah it's pretty good so you could be yeah, creative that's the with the rain it. garden there too yeah um, the Aratland Botanic Gardens in Port Augusta I'm sure you've you've seen them yeah place. they're beautiful there mm. well well, before I get to my point, I mean, Steve and I had a pretty good time there. We saw like yeah. two sangoannas, bearded yeah. dragons, so many shinglebacks, shinglebacks mating. The nicest um, <laughs> brown snake I've ever seen. Yeah, Western brown, that Western was brown. tan brown, yeah, tan brown it was banding. Amazing! Like watching that go across the ground with its banding was, it was just strange, wasn't it? It was mm. stunning. Yeah, mm, beautiful, beautiful place. Mm. So they've got um, mark tags on what some of the plants are, but yeah. um, off to the side they've actually got formal garden settings and they've got a few different examples yes, of what yeah. can be done. Have you seen that? They've got the yeah, there was a fact sheet that goes with it too, I think. Yeah, there is, and there's a plaque there with um, that same image from the fact sheet showing the garden design and, you know, like courtyard garden mm. designs and, you know, with a bird bath. And yeah. So you don't have to have just a just a mess of native plants which does turn people off because people have to think about their resale sure. value and what their neighbours think and maybe they're part of a strata block of units or whatever um, but these things can be done I don't want to say that bush isn't tasteful but they can be done artistically or tastefully yeah. perhaps yeah you can incorporate that that amenity um, so the function and the form so you know it's always kind of balancing those two out but if if the particular like a streetscape for example you know you might uh, for a particular reason, need to plant a certain type of, of species, and purely for its function. Um, and sometimes that that may not be a local native plant, but you know that that's understandable. But certainly, in terms of your options for using local native plants in in those different style gardens, there's great to see those those examples like the Arrow Gardens, and and making it easy for people again, so that you can look at your the plans there and go and look at the labelled plants and get that information. Barossa Bush Gardens is another another good spot to go. Um, even botanic gardens have certain areas where you can go and you know, learn about more about your plants and, um, and how they're used in a particular garden setting. Hmm. So more, the more the merrier, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One hot tip someone gave me once was if you're looking to plant out your garden, have a wander around the local area and see what's working. You know, yeah. there's a species that, oh, that's thriving and I like the look of that. And get a, a specimen or a photograph and, you know, that might be a place to start too. Yeah, definitely. That's just leading to more bloody agapanthus. Well, it could be. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but they stop fire, so you know. right. <laughs> I don't know about all that. No. <laughs> They're quite fleshy, aren't they? So yeah, you, yeah. A bit. I tell you, they're the best places for snails. They're You've good. got they blue tongue lizards and you want snails go to agapanthas because wow there is a lot of snails well, in when things. i moved in here ross uh, that all the way along the edge of the lawn was agapanthas and yeah. um i got the shovel out and i tried to dig oh, them out it's and just a massive fight uh, just yeah and i thought well, i'm gonna get what do i have to get an excavator out here so anyway, <laughs> i thought oh no one's gonna take this up but i 
put a photo up on um, social media and I said, <laughs> free Agapanthers, dig them up yourself. And this lad came and got them all out within half a day. And what he did was he had still cat boobs right. and he had a crowbar. And he uh. just shoved the crowbar under the Agapanthers and just levered it on his boots. And they just go flip and they're out. Yep. Huh. He took yours and then he came and took all mine as yeah. well. <laughs> it was a trend. <laughs> he but, probably sold them for a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yes, definitely good for snails. They're, they are good I've for got snails. a bunch of them in, just in our garden that we just go and get snails out of for the blue tongues. Oh, there you go. Hmm. Yeah, harvest awesome. your own snails. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you eat snails too, don't you, Steve? I love... Oh, Escargo. It's, it's the best food ever. Any particular type? Or just it a is a garden, type. Garden it, it is a... It is a special type of snail. It's not a special type of snail. They're actually farmed in South Australia. Um, where's that, Adrian? Down oh, near Meningi somewhere. Yeah, it is that way, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, down there yeah. somewhere. There's a woman that does it. Um, uh, yeah, and that, that's so tasty, escargot. Hmm. It's a French snail, obviously, a European sure. snail of some sort. Yeah, never uh, it's, it's probably quite a few species. Really tasty. Really tasty. Well, you put a bit of, you put extra garlic on them, don't yeah, you? Yeah, garlic butter on them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I had one at yours. It was, it was all right. It was yeah, good. yeah. Most people don't try them, but you did try them. They, they're, yeah, they're amazingly yeah. tasty. Yeah, yeah. So. Have you had cricket, cricket powder? Well, I think we all have at some point. Okay, it's in a lot of things. Cricket, really? pro- yeah, it's protein. So my, anyone who's had supplements, exercise supplements, most of the time that's actually cricket protein in them. Huh. I reckon. Mid of the future. Mm. Yeah. So, but as a as distinct from cockroach powder, don't know. Or does that class as a cricket? It possibly all classes. I think it's just insect protein. Yeah. But I don't think they even write insect protein on there. I think it's just okay. a number oh, really? of some. That's sneaky. Yeah. Well, most people wouldn't eat it otherwise. <laughs> I don't mind well, that. You don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> insects are meant to be very tasty, and more of us should eat insects. Well, it's funny. I mean, nobody balks when you say you have crab at dinner. Mm. You know, but you eat a spider and everyone thinks you're a freak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or scorpions and. Yeah, but crickets, uh, locusts, uh, mealworms apparently just. They, 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 a lot of them just taste like nuts. Apparently. Right, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, certainly witchetty grubs, so it's a bit nutty. Have you yeah. had one? Yeah, that's a, a pretty nutty sort of flavour. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're all a bit nutty. Nutty, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, thank you so much for us. That's excellent. Oh, no, it's been great and good. Nice to finally come and see your place too. Oh, and mate. meet Steve. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's been a pleasure meeting you again after your, your talk with Sophie and Adrian. Oh, and yes, by yes. far, like, Adrian's talk was by far third best. <laughs> In the top three. <laughs> In the top three. Yeah. It's been great to have you involved with, um, with those talks and we should look to do some more of those, but... Um, I think you know, in terms of just engaging people, we talked a lot about plants, and and that's that's great. But then if you can actually bring some of the animals along, which is kind of why we got you involved, it, you know, that really gets people interested, mm. and you can sort of think, well, oh well, you know, there's um, this type of animal that I never knew about that actually lives in South Australia, for example. So there were a lot of people in that room who, most of them would be you'd probably think already on board with the concepts that we're talking about and a lot of people were quite surprised to learn what you had to say so, about some of those animals so it was fantastic absolute honour mate yeah. Yeah. yeah happy to do it any time more to come that's what it's all about um, thanks for all you do mate you're an absolute legend oh no thank you love your work and guys thank you for listening